some are wondering, why are we going to Genesis 3 for a Christmas message? <laughs> you shall find out. Genesis chapter 3. All right, is everyone there? All right, now, a few nights ago, Janita and I was watching TV, and um, as she was flipping the channel uh, to different shows, she turned to uh, this show called His Dark Material. And um, I don't know what this show is about, but it was interesting. Okay. So <laughs> we watched it, but we only caught the last 20 minutes of the show. Uh, we missed the first 40 minutes of, of it, and even though it was interesting and it kept my attention, several times I said to Janita, I have no idea what is going on here, right? The plot, it just kept twisting with different things. I'm like, I, I, I'm confused. I have no idea what this show is about because I missed the first 40 minutes. I wasn't able to put the last 20 minutes, the storyline of the last 20 minutes in its proper context, and therefore I was confused. Because I came in at the end of the story, I was confused by parts of the storyline that I did get to see. For clarity, I needed to see the story from the beginning so I could put the end of the story in its proper context. And I believe that th we experience the same problem when we read the Bible. We see the Bible as a collection of individual stories, but sometimes forget that these individual stories all make up one drama, one story being told to us by God. During Christmas time, we often read the stories of Jesus' birth, but like coming in at the end of a movie, we don't often understand how this fits into the entire storyline. So today, I want to set Jesus' birth in the context of the storyline of Scripture so we can see there really is only one story being told in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 14. That's where we will begin. It reads, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you, sh and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. I want us to look at this passage today and use the title, Why the God-Man? Father, we thank you again for allowing us to uh, read your word. I pray that you would give us understanding of, of your word and how uh, your birth fit within the context of the story of Scripture. 
I pray that you would help us to understand that your birth has always been set in the context of your death, your sacrifice for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a better appreciation of all that you have been doing from the foundation of the world to save sinners like us. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are all familiar with uh, the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates everything that we see. God does not do this uh, by physical labor. God acts by his word. So we see in the beginning of chapter 1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God begins to speak. Right. God said, let there be light. God said, let the earth bring forth animals. And so every single time God spoke, things happened because God acts by his word. God's word has always been true. But when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we see a different creature that has come along. And this creature challenges the word of God. Whereas God spoke and things happened and everything that God says was right and true, and Adam and Eve was rightly related to God as they obeyed his word by faith, now we have a creature who is challenging God's word because he's questioning whether or not God is being fair to Adam and Eve. We all know the story. Adam and uh, Eve sees the tree. She sees that it is good for food, that it is desirable to make one wise. And since she was hungry, she grabbed the fruit and she ate of the fruit. And Adam came along and said, girl, what you doing? Right. And she's like, you better eat this fruit, too. So Adam took the fruit <laughs> and he also ate because he did not want to be alone in the garden. OK, <laughs> so right, that's the my interpretation translation. All right. So immediately after they ate the fruit, they recognized that they were sinners, whereas originally they were naked and not ashamed. Now they realized that they were naked and they took it upon themselves to clothe themselves. Now, uh, we pick up the story here because God shows up and God has already told Adam the day that they eat of this fruit, they are going to surely die. So now they hear God walking in the garden. And whereas they used to run to God and have this open relationship with God, they hid themselves because they were afraid. Now, God shows up for judgment. And I want us to look at the curses that God meets out to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Look at verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I don't, I'm not going to get into, you know, the weeds with this, but what I want us to see here, several things. Number one, God now says that Eve is going to have pain when she gives birth. Um, you remember when we, we, when we looked at this before, I said that the curses that God gave um, was in relationship to their, his, his design for each one of them. And so since Eve was designed as the one who was supposed to give birth and take care of her family, that is where her curses lay. Um, lay. Whereas she would have given birth and there would have been no pain, right? Too bad, women. <laughs> now, he is going to greatly multiply her sorrow and her pain in giving birth. Something that was supposed to be her pride and joy 
is now going to bring her pain. Secondly, it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. God has also promised that Eve is going to have conflict with her husband as she seeks to take her husband's authority. Now, um, I want you to see this. I don't have this on my notes, but I want you to see this. Cause I know people are like going to come up to me at the church and say, I don't think that's what it says. It says her desire will be for her husband, meaning she loves her husband so much, but then he's just going to be mean. He's going to rule over her. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. We all know uh, the story in chapter 4. Uh, it's the story of Cain and Abel. And so Cain is jealous of his brother, and he kills him. Listen to what God says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Look at verse 6 first. It says, So the Lord came to Cain, uh, and, I mean, said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, meaning to his heart. And, read out loud, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, is God telling Cain, sin loves you? It desires just a closer relationship with you. No. It, when he says its desire is for you, it means it wants to control you. It wants to rule over you. But you must master it. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. It's the exact same construction in Hebrew. Eve, you're going to want to take control of your husband. He won't allow it. <laughs> he will rule over you. They want to see that. All right. I just saved my explanation time after church. All right. There's going to be perpetual conflict in marriage as husbands and wives fight over who is going to be in charge. Perpetual fight. To Adam, look in verses. 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, Adam's curse is in relationship to his role in the family. You remember that before God even created, uh, before God even created Eve, he gave Adam a job. Okay, now I could, if this was a relationship series, you know, we could take the time to explain why women keep dating people who don't work, and then you get married and be like, well, he still won't get a job. Well, what did you think he was going to do? <laughs> okay. okay. But we're not in a relationship series, right? God promises Adam that because he was supposed to work and take care of his family, that his curse is going to be in that area. Whereas before he sinned, the earth would produce abundantly to provide for him and his family. Now, the ground itself is going to be cursed. It will not produce abundantly for Adam. He would now have to work hard, do hard labor in order to provide food for himself and his family. He was promised perpetual frustration as he tries to work and provide for his family. And he would experience this perpetual frustration until he dies. Sorry, men. <laughs> right. And so 
as men, we have adapted to this frustration and we have just become lazy. We just don't work. <laughs> we don't provide. God also gives a third curse to the serpent whom we know is Satan. I want you to look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm not going to deal with verse 14 at all. Um, I do not know if snakes walked. I don't know if people are like, well, snakes must have walked if he said, on your belly you shall crawl and eat dust. I, d I don't know. Do not know. Um, anything is possible. But I'm going to skip that. We're going to look just at verse 15. <laughs> the curse that God gives to the serpent, who we know uh, behind the serpent is Satan, he says that perpetually there is going to be strife between him and the woman and between his seed and the woman's seed until a specific seed of the woman comes and crushes his head. You see that in, in verse 15. Uh, this verse is what we call the Proto-Euangelion, the first example of the gospel. This is the first example of the gospel in the entire Bible. Because here, God is promising Satan that there is going to be conflict between those who side with God and those who side with Satan. And we see this throughout Scripture. Just in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain... He was not of God because he killed his brother. And why did he kill his kill did he kill his brother? Because God accepted Abel and his sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain and his sacrifice. So he killed his brother. Perpetual conflict. We see this chapter after chapter after chapter. But God says that one day there will be a specific seed of the woman. And this seed is going to do battle directly with Satan himself. And in this battle, Satan is going to inflict a minor wound on him. It says he will bruise his heel. But in the process of this bruising, this minor injury, this seed of the woman is going to inflict upon Satan his ultimate defeat. He will crush his head. Okay. Now, we, of course, know that this prefigures Jesus' death on the cross, right? But what does, from this passage, what does this battle look like? Can we look at this passage itself and see anything about this battle. And I think that we find it in the last few verses of this chapter. I want us to look specifically at verse 21. Verse 21. Just one verse. It says, very simply, also... For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, then it goes on to talk about how God put them out of the Garden of Eden because they had sinned. He did not want them to, excuse me, live forever in their sin. So he restricted them from the tree of life. Right. So they were banished. They were put out of the presence of God. They were alienated, to use Paul's words. He, they were alienated from the life of God. But what did God do in order to resolve this, pro um, um, this problem? First, I want you to see that God provided a temporary atonement. What do I mean by atonement? 
When we talk about atonement, we're talking about what God has done to make mankind right with himself. How does God bring peace? What we see here in this passage is God providing a temporary atonement, a temporary way for mankind to be right in his presence. But this temporary form of atonement foreshadows the ultimate expression of atonement, which is the death of God's son on the cross for sinners. Now, three things I want you to see in this one verse. Number one, I want you to notice that God provides the atonement. Adam and Eve does nothing, right? Adam and Eve sinned. God pronounced his curses upon him, and then God acts in order to save them. God, it says, kills an animal, and then it ma- he makes clothing for them of these animal skins, right? Number two, notice that instead of Adam and Eve dying for their own sin, a substitute died in their place. Literally, instead of God shedding Adam and Eve's blood, like he said, you will surely die, he substituted this animal in their place, and he shed the blood of this animal so that Adam and Eve could live. You see that? Number three, notice that Adam and Eve was clothed in the animal skin. It says that he killed, it, he killed the animal, he made clothes, and he clothed them with it. Now, what I want us to see um, about these three points in Genesis chapter 3 is that these three points are echoed throughout the rest of Scripture in reference to Jesus Christ. Okay? So, all of these things are prefiguring what God is going to do in Jesus. I want us to look at these three points. Tons of scriptures I could have um, gone to to show these three points are really uh, just God's way of teaching us what he was going to do for us in Christ. But, number one, uh, in reference to God providing the atonement and mankind being able to do nothing, first I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We should all be familiar with Isaiah 7. Every uh, Christmas, we read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. (laughs) And it's probably about the only times we actually do read (laughs) out of Isaiah, right? Except for when you get to Easter, then we want to read in the, you know, 53 (laughs) and the, the other servant songs. Isaiah chapter 7, I want us to read verses 10 through 14. And again, in these verses, I want us to see God is providing the atonement. God is providing the atonement. He is the one doing the work. Verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay. Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. Ahaz knew he was in sin. Nope, not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask for anything. (laughs) So, God himself is going to act. God is going to give you a sign. What is the sign? Behold, the virgin, the virgin, shall um, conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know from the passage that we read this morning in Matthew 1 that Emmanuel means God with us. This is not something that human beings can do. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3.
I'll start reading at verse 9. Because sometimes we think that uh, we don't accept this idea that only God can bring forth an atonement. Only God can make mankind right with himself. We think that in some way we can help. <laughs> we can work our way to being right with God. And uh, we will look at this starting in January, this idea, when we get into the book of Galatians. Um, some of you may know that, that when Paul, Paul wrote the book of Galatians in a very truncated way, he was dealing with a specific issue. Um, but in the book of Romans, he takes the very same themes and ideas and he amplifies them uh, in, uh, in Romans. Okay, So when we look in Galatians, we'll see parallel passage to, to some of these things. Listen to what he says here. For everyone who believes that they can somehow work hard enough to make themselves right with God, this is God's assessment of you. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, this is what God thinks of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing, God forbid, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul concludes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, what Paul is saying here, and we'll again we'll look at it in, in Galatians, is that some people believe that when God says, Gives the Ten Commandments, boom, 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 all Ten Commandments. Wow, I can do that. And, and if I can just work hard enough in order to keep those laws, I can make myself right with God. Paul says, don't fool yourself because you are so sinful that you will never be able to keep the law of God because in order to be justified, to, in order to be right with God, in order to be not guilty before God, you have to keep the law perfectly. 100% of the time. 100% of the laws, 100% of the time. But because we are sinners, we will never be justified in God's sight. We will never make ourselves right with God. God must do it. We can not. Now, all of us know John 3.16. John 3.16. Very, very clearly, here we can see that this is something that God is doing and not us. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? God loved the world. God gave. <laughs> okay? God loved the world. God gave. Has nothing to do with us. The only part that we play, it says, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we will address this in Galatians. We, we've addressed it with James. But faith is not doing anything. <laughs> faith is just receiving. Okay. So God provides the atonement. 
we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. The more and more we try to make ourselves right with God, the more frustrated we become till we get to the place that Paul got to in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? <laughs> right. Number two, in reference to substitutionary atonement, as far as Adam and Eve not dying for the, their own sins, but God providing a substitute in their place, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Keep working your way to the right. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Then remember, girls eat popcorn. Okay. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> you got to use every tool available to memorize all 66 books, right? And in the right order. Verse 19, Colossians 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You were enemies. You hated God. You unfriended him on Facebook. Okay. And yet, God acted to send his son to die in your place. And because he died in your place, he took the, the punishment you deserve so that you could now have peace and be holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. See that? He was our substitute. Instead of us being the ones to die on the cross, Jesus died in our place. Galatians chapter 3. Go back to your left. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 13 and 14. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, he's saying here that we were should be cursed by God, but Jesus was cursed in our place so that we could receive salvation, that is, the blessing of Abraham, according to Genesis chapter 12. Jesus was cursed. He died so that we could have eternal life. Last one, 2 Corinthians. Go again, one book to your left. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He took our sin placed it on his son, and because he saw his son as possessing our sin, he killed his son in our place so that we could become 
the righteousness of God so that we could be proclaimed as righteous in his father's sight. And that rolls right into the third portion of where Adam and Eve was was clothed in the skins of the animals. That is only prefiguring that God now sees us as clothed in his son's righteousness. Right. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and put it as a robe on Jesus and took Jesus's righteousness and put it around us as a robe of righteousness for us. Look at back in the book of Romans. Romans is where we'll end looking at these scriptures. Romans chapter 3. What I want us to see is uh, what we should be gathering here is that Jesus's birth can only be understood in the context of his death. He came here as a baby so that he could grow up and die for us. And what we're, we are seeing here is that in dying for us, Jesus took what we had, which is our sin, and he gave us what we lacked. We lacked righteousness before God. We lacked this right standing before God. And this is what Jesus supplies for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what you want, I want you to see is that the word righteous and the word justified the wor- and the word um, just, these are all the same words, ideas here, okay? So, he says that the righteousness of God is now revealed apart from the law. In the law, God told us what we needed to do in order to be righteous. He said, I'm not going to make you a quote for me all of the Ten Commandments, but you should be able to because we've already done this as catechism. All right. (laughs) But he said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Honor um, the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Honor your mother and father. I missed that one. That was number six. <laughs> All right. So he tells us in his law what he requires of us. That is what you need to do in order to be righteous in my sight. Follow those rules. Now, um, in order to follow those rules, we get the rest of the, the laws that come out of that, right? Six hundred and 16 in all, okay, so if you can memorize them all and obey them all, you can be righteous in my sight. For those of you all who cannot memorize all 616 laws and keep all of them, God has revealed his righteousness apart from the law. And his righteousness is communicated, it is shared and given to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Now, he goes on to say that the category of people who can memorize all 616 laws and obey all 616 laws is exactly zero. (laughs) Okay. Verse 22, he says, there's no difference. We're all in the same category. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you think that you can do good enough in order to be righteous in God's sight, 
have at it, but the rest of us understand we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, we need another way. And that way was provided to us in Christ. He said, goes on to say, verse 24, that we are freely justified. God freely passes out this righteousness to anyone who accepts Jesus by faith. He takes our sin, puts it on Christ, and takes Christ's perfect obedience to all of his commands and all of his laws, and he gives it to you by faith. He clothes us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus because that is the only way mankind can be righteous in his sight. Last scripture is Romans 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. In reference to Abraham, says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it is not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Listen to what he says. He says that Abraham was in relationship with God. God made Abraham a promise. Abraham did not work in order to please God. He simply believed the promise that God made to him, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so he goes on to talk about, use this word imputation. Okay. Now, the, the idea of this word imputation, uh, it, means to, it means to place something on someone's account, right? So, uh, you make a, a, a transaction, right? You swipe your card, right? And, and the bank does magic. It pulls money out of your account, and it places the money in the account of the person that you're making a purchase from, right? The same thing happens to those who trust Jesus by faith. God imputes our sin. He takes our sin and places it on Jesus' account. And at the same time, he takes Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, and he does another transaction, and he places Jesus' perfect obedience on our account so that Jesus is considered a sinner and we are considered righteous. And because of that transaction, because of that imputation, because of him robing us in his righteousness, he says, verse 5, we now have peace with God. So for all those who wrestle and struggle with, with whether or not God really loves you, if there's peace between you and God, if there's some strife or ongoing issue that God has with you, he says, because he has clothed you with his son's righteousness, you now have peace. You're no longer at war with God. Or rather, God is no longer at war with you, <laughs> which is the more scary thing. Because <laughs> you can't do anything to God, but God can do a whole lot with you. Yeah. You're no longer at war. He says you have access to his grace. And even tribulation and trials and persecutions, none of those things can affect 
your standing before God because God only sees you as righteous because of Christ. So even when you sin now, God still sees you as righteous because of Christ. Now I have one more question I need to answer um, uh, here. Could Jesus have been a normal human being and still save us from our sins? Could Jesus have been a normal human being and still saved us from our sins? Great book if you want to do some reading. Always a great book. Okay. You want to do some, some reading um, by a medieval uh, writer, which you probably don't want to, okay? <laughs> um, but St. Anselm wrote a great book, right? Uh, uh, in English, it would, be, um, it would be translated, Why the God-Man? Okay. Um, and, and so he deals with why Jesus uh, had to be both God and man. So summarize some of, uh, some of his ideas. Jesus could not be only a human being because if Jesus was only a man, for those of Jesus was a great man. He was a great prophet. He set a great example for us. If Jesus was only a man, he could not save us from our sins because Jesus would need to have an atonement made for his own sins. Right? Think about the Old T Testament priests. They were able to go and make atonement for the people. Once a year, they could enter into uh, into the, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, but before he could do that, he had to make an atonement for himself because he also was a man and a sinner. If Jesus was just a normal human being, Jesus would need to make atonement for his own sins, and so therefore he would not be qualified as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Number two. But a human being had to be the one to pay the sacrifice, right? Because human beings were the ones who sinned. So the, 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 the person to die for a sin had to be a human being, but he had to be more than a human being because he needed to be a perfect sacrifice. And only God himself, is perfect enough to provide the sacrifice to, to, for atonement. Number three. The problem is we could never make atonement for sin. Because the very first time you sin, you're already in a deficit, and yet you still owe God perfect obedience, right? You have to perfectly obey every single command throughout your entire life, but because you're a sinner, you can never make up for the sin that you commit because it's an eternal punishment. So the only way for our sins to be atoned for God has to do the work. God has to act. He has to grant us forgiveness. So, putting all of these things together, right? A human being had to die for sin. And at the same time, this human being had to be perfect because it had to be a perfect sacrifice. But only God is perfect. You see, you, you got me. So there had to be a perfect human being, which means that this human being had to also be God, so that he could at the same time die for our sin and, at the, and while dying for our sin, not deserve eternal death. So that, and we can look at Romans chapter 1, 
that when Jesus died for our sin, God raised him from the dead because he deserved life. And Jesus' resurrection is proof that the Father accepted his perfect sacrifice so that, as we just read, he was raised up because of our sins, meaning hung on the cross, and he was resurrected for our justification. Because he now lives and God has accepted his sacrifice, God takes that perfect sacrifice and imputes it to us freely by faith. Now, what I want us to see as I close, you close your Bibles, is Jesus' death, I mean, his life has always been set in context of his death. You cannot separate the two. Jesus did not come to set a good example for us. Oh, he was a great holy man. He set an example for us to live. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came for one purpose and one purpose only. He came so that he could die for our sin. We saw that in Matthew chapter 1, the scripture that we read this morning, right? It says, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. That's the purpose that he came for. And when we think about Jesus' birth all the way through his death, what we must keep in mind is the story of Genesis. That God created us for a loving relationship with him. But because Adam and Eve obeyed the voice of the serpent, they turned their back on God. And by doing that, they not only condemned themselves, they condemned all of us. But God, not wanting to send all of his children to hell, he sent his son to die for us. So that because we can't, atone for our own sin because we can't fix ourselves because we cannot make things right all we have to do is put our trust in Jesus and when we trust in Jesus he gives us the righteousness that we need so God has given us the greatest gift I know that on Christmas, we think about giving gifts and receiving gifts and, and, and want to know, what am I getting? And then if we don't uh, get what we really wanted, we are disappointed, we smile, but then we just uh, take the gift receipt and exchange it for something else. Okay. <laughs> okay. But God gave us the greatest gift. He gave us the greatest thing he possessed. He gave us his son. And his son gave us the greatest thing that he had. He gave us his life. So that every one of us who puts our trust in him can have eternal life. That is the reason or the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> now, I want us to close this out because, um, again, many of us are going to leave here today. Uh, over the next 24 hours, we should say, uh, or 30 hours, and uh, we are going to be frantically running to the stores. Okay. Um, we know that Amazon is too late to order on Amazon. Right, it will get here after Christmas, and and we will be, we will be really deeply concerned about making sure we have the right things under the tree. Uh, so much concern that we will spend money that we do not have to impress people who do not like us. <laughs> okay. 
and we will be angry in around January the 9th or so when those credit card bills start coming in. Like, man, why did I spend so much money? Because we don't really understand the reason for Christmas. Now, I understand that traditionally we give gifts because the wise men came and they presented gifts to Jesus. And so and so what we're now doing is taking that idea. And so we're presenting gifts. And I get all of that. <laughs> but let's not lose sight of the fact that that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is not about going in debt to give people gifts. Christmas is about God giving us the ultimate gift. He gave us his son. And if you have received the son, you have everything, as Peter says, that pertains to life and godliness. You have everything you need. Everything you need to be sufficient in your relationship with God. And if we can keep that one thing in mind, that it's not about the toys, great, if I get something. If not, I don't get something, that's great. I have the greatest gift. Keep that in in mind. Because no one will ever give you a greater gift than the one that God has um, presented to you. Father, we thank you today for allowing us this opportunity, this time to be able to reflect on the first Christmas where you fulfilled your promise to Ahaz that the virgin would give birth to a son and his name would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. Not a regular human being, not an angel, not a great prophet. He will be God with us. Knowing the situation that we were in, Lord, you came yourself to die for us. And that is the greatest gift that anyone could ever give us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in this time because so many people are are sad and depressed because they don't have gifts or they don't have the money to give gifts or, or for whatever reason, Lord, this is a great time of sadness and depression. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be reminded that you've already given us the greatest gift. And because you have given us the gift of your son, We now have peace with you. There's no more strife, no more enmity, no more war. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to spend this Christmas season reflecting on how much love you had for us as an individual, that you would give your own son to die on our behalf. And reflecting on that alone, should cure any sadness that we have for not receiving a gift. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work an understanding in our hearts, to understand all that you have done, that you worked to provide the atonement. You gave your son as a substitute. You have wrapped us in your son's righteousness. And all we have to do is receive your son by faith. Help us to keep these things constantly before our hearts and minds, Lord. So that in the times where we are feeling sad in this joyous season, we will realize that it is not about gifts, but you are the reason for the season. I pray, Lord, that as we as we are leaving this place today, that you will help us not to be caught up in the commercialization of Christmas but that we would keep you before our eyes and that we would be able to shine as lights before every person that we meet so that as they see your light brightly shining in us, 
that we would also be able to pass it on to them, Lord, so that more people in this time will be able to receive the gift of your son through our lives. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.